from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. So today's guest is a fellow named Mike J, based in the United Kingdom. I think he may be the most outstanding of all the drug historians living today. And I say that because there's a lot of competition for that title, but Mike has been somebody who's both delved narrowly into specific bits of history as well as written kind of almost sort of global-like histories about drugs. Google him or look him up on Amazon and you'll see his books on drugs include High Society and Empress of Dreams. But he's also written, you know, a dozen or more other books about madness with all sorts of neat and weird titles. I mean, he's been a historian for decades. He's, he's, a, he's written about science and medicine and madness, literature, radical politics, but drugs, psychoactive drugs have played a really big role in the stuff that he's been writing. So, Mike, well, let me just start off by, by welcoming you and, and, and thanking you so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Oh, great pleasure to be here, Ethan. 
I'm talking to Mike here about his latest book, which is Mescaline. It's the history of the drug mescaline. I mean, you've written about the history of drugs going way back. What prompted you to focus on mescaline as something to write about? Right. I guess I started writing about the history of drugs at a point when not many people were doing that. And it's become, as you say, a kind of thing that I do, um, among other things. And um, the history of drugs is not a lot of what things that we recognize today as psychedelics don't play a huge role in broader histories, uh, largely because a lot of them weren't synthesized or discovered until then. Um, and mescaline seemed to me to be a really appealing way of, of getting at this because um, uh, unlike LSD, for example, which kind of appeared in a laboratory, as we know, in the 1940s, having had no previous life. Mescaline had had many, many different lives before it was a psychedelic, back before the 1950s. For decades, it had been widely used in science and in medicine and in psychiatry, all the way back to the 19th century. And then before that, of course, it had a very, very long history through the mescaline-containing cacti and indigenous history going back thousands of years. So it was a chance to look at something that is kind of a foundational psychedelic and then to see how it played out in different times and places, how it was used before you know all this kind of very capacious concept of psychedelic got wrapped around it. And the other thing that was uh, really uh, appealing to me about mescaline was that uh, it's a history that you can kind of divide equally between Western and non-Western understandings. It was a chance to tease those two apart and see the roles that uh, mescaline-containing plants have played in indigenous cultures, and then kind of in parallel to unfold the story of the Western discovery of mescaline, the chemical compound. I pitched that to my editor, and he said, "Why isn't there a book about?" mescaline you know there's dozens of histories of lsd and mdma and stuff so why isn't there a history of mescaline and uh, i said oh man that would be such a job to pull together because most of the literature is not translated huge trunk chunks of it are in french or in german or in spanish or in polish or romanian and, you know you'd have to be right across all these different disciplines in the history of science and and he just you know like good editors do always push you to do something that's more than you wanted to do and sign up for <laughs> in the first place so i guess that was the aha moment at which i went okay we need a, a proper history of mescaline part of what you do early on in the book is that you take mescaline back to its origins and that origins doesn't just go back to you know native americans in the native american church and peyote in the in the southwest of the u.s 100 years ago or so it goes back much more much deeper than that so why don't you start off by mike just telling us a little bit about that more ancient history of mescaline yeah i think uh for um, most people who know a bit about psychedelics, the assumption is that this is where the story starts in the 1950s with Aldous Huxley and with uh, mescaline and LSD. That was one of the things that I noticed early on trying to tell the story of mescaline is that it's pretty much the end of the story of mescaline. I mean, even when Huxley was writing Doors of Perception, it was kind of being replaced by LSD and disappearing. So actually the story the story of psychedelics, of course, goes forward from that moment, but the story of mescaline goes all the way back 
you know, it goes back in Western culture, you know, to the 19th century. And I think that's a fascinating period that's not really looked at. And then before that, we have this long period of indigenous history. And uh, what really opened that up for me was uh, many years ago, I guess about 15 years ago, going to Peru and visiting this uh, ancient temple site called Chavin, which is up in the high Andes, a very mysterious site. Not much was known about it until recently. Probably kind of a thousand BC was when the first um, sort of bit of the temple there was built, and it's got a frieze with drawings around it of these figures, um, half human, half animal, with kind of fangs and claws. Some of them look like they're transforming from humans into animals. And the main one right in the middle is holding this cactus, which is very obviously the San Pedro cactus, the mescaline-containing cactus. And in fact, still around Chavin there, San Pedro cactus grows everywhere. You're up on the high altiplano there. It's quite windswept. So lots of people plant hedges of San Pedro around their houses. It's that commonplace. And Mike, I should just interrupt you to explain, because we talked a bit about this on the Michael Pollan episode, but when Mm -hmm. we think about mescaline, the two principal cactus, one is peyote, um, you know, I guess from the more parts of northern Mexico and the southwest of the U.S., and the other one is San Pedro, which grows much more extensively and doesn't quite have the the famous ring of peyote, but it's also a major and actually much more abundant source of mescaline in its natural form, right? It's enormously abundant. I remember driving around the Andes and just, you know, through those valleys and you're seeing um, mile after mile after mile, there's almost nothing but San Pedro cactus. It's not quite as potent it doesn't, as a mescaline source as peyote is. Percentages are difficult, but peyote is often about 3% um, mescaline and uh, San Pedro more like 1%. Uh, it's traditionally um, brewed up and uh, stewed and re- boiled and reduced and uh, taken as a, a, as a drink. And mm-hmm. there is a tradition of its use by uh, curanderos, traditional healers, which evolved on the north coast of Peru and was not really much known about until the 70s when it started to be studied. And now I think San Pedro, or uh, to use its uh, its indigenous, its uh, Quechua name, Huachuma, is very, very widely used uh, around the world in kind of shamanic, neo-shamanic healing, psychedelic contexts. Mm-hmm. So basically, I mean, one of the encounters, right, is you have this use going back thousands of years in parts of South America, and then the Spanish conquistadors and invaders come, and as with coca, there's quite a tangle, as I understand, between them and the indigenous users of this. I mean, the main thing, of course, that we get as, uh, you know, looking back into this history is that's the point where we get written records. So a lot of the... uh, Spanish who arrived in Mexico in the 16th century, Jesuits and also physicians and um, Spanish uh, people of learning and uh, military people of different stripes give us little bits of about peyote that give us some sense of how it's used. And they're astonished, obviously, to discover this culture, which is in some ways, in terms of herbal medicine, it's much more advanced than Europe. Uh, It's got all kinds of uh, valuable medicines in it, but it's also got these mushrooms and these cacti and um, all sorts of other plants and seeds that uh, produce um, hallucinations or visionary experiences. 
And yeah, we start to get, a, get an account of that and what's going on. Of course, it's very heavily inflected through the religious wars and the witch craze, which are going on in Europe at the time. So uh, if people are taking a cactus and getting possessed and going into trances and seeing the future and channeling spirits and they're not Christian, this is obviously the work of the devil. So uh, from the 17th century onwards, the Mexican Inquisition prohibited peyote and it became excluded. But nevertheless, you can see people carried on using it. And also the mestizo populations, those generations who emerged after conquest, also started started using it for healing and divination and sorcery and all kinds of other uses. So it became a problem drug, I guess, in the way that we would think of it in the, in, in the modern era. And also at the same time, a marker of the difference between indigenous people and civilized Western people. Indigenous people used peyote and civilized Western people didn't. Mm -hmm. The same way in which the Spanish reacted to this stuff hundreds of years ago really resembles the way that other elements of the Western world, including in the U.S., respond to this stuff in the in the late 19th and 20th century when it becomes common among, you know, for certain different tribes in the southwest of the U.S. At one point, you say that the Spanish talking back in the 15, 1600s, the Spanish observed psychedelics through the lens of alcohol while the Indians treated alcohol like a psychedelic. Mm -hmm. I think both cultures had very different attitudes to intoxication, and each one imposes you know, their cultural form of intoxication on this. So the Spanish, I think, looked at indigenous Mexicans on um, peyote or on mushrooms and went, uh, oh, they're drunk. This is uh, intoxication. So they didn't really see the ceremonies in which they were used as um, sacred or spiritual. They just saw them as kind of drunken orgies. And in the same way, the Indians, when they encountered alcohol, used it in a way that looked to the Spanish as if they were kind of just uh, all congenital alcoholics, unable to refrain from drinking. But they kind of pursued alcohol in the same way that they would pursue these kind of more intense plant psychedelics. So Spanish habits like, for example, having a little casual drink of alcohol of wine on your own or, uh, you know, something like that, you know, Indians would never have done. But if they had um, some alcohol and they decided to uh, take it together. Everybody would take it together and everybody would drink it all until it was drunk and people would have, you know, the most powerful visionary experience they could have. Yeah. I mean, in a way, that, that distinction between the sort of communal use and experience of mescaline um, among indigenous folks and, on the other hand, the very individualistic use of it among more contemporary Western uh, folks, mm. you know, is, is a major theme throughout your writing. Now, presumably, the use of mescaline continues, you know, notwithstanding the Spanish efforts to suppress it in parts of Latin America extending up through Mexico. But I guess it really enters into the U.S. around the late 19th, early 20th century. And I'll have to say there were two figures I did not know about before um, who really stand out in this history of 120 years ago in the U.S. One is a white guy named James Mooney, and the other is a Native American, a Comanche leader named, I think, Quanar. And maybe mm -hmm. you could just use those two folks to tell us a little of the story about how peyote and the church really get going in the United States. Yeah, it's fascinating because uh, peyote is is known back in, to the tribes back in the 17th or 18th century as a 
medicine, but it doesn't really get used as a sacrament. And the peyote religion doesn't really develop until the period of forced captivity after the Indian wars, when the Indians are confined on uh, reservations. Every tribe has got a different story of how it starts, but the first thing you hear from white sources is that this is groups of Indians getting together on reservations at night in the teepee so nobody can see what they're doing and having these uh, private little ceremonies. And the first white man to attend one of these ceremonies was the fellow you mentioned, James Mooney, who was an ethnographer at the Smithsonian Institution, who spent that period of his life traveling around Oklahoma and learning everything he could about the tribes. Uh, He'd learned a lot of their languages. He was uh, fascinated by their traditions, which were, of course, at that point, all disappearing before his eyes because, you know, the Federal Indian Bureau was about, you know, assimilating the tribes into normal American life and breaking these traditions down. So uh, Mooney was really kind of running as fast as he could to catch all these centuries of tradition before they disappeared. And, um, This is at the moment when the ghost dance appears, uh, a new Indian uh, ceremony that is um, prophesied by a prophet who um, comes up with uh, new dances and new songs and new costumes and begins this movement, uh, this kind of millenarian movement, which is about kind of dancing the white man out uh, out of their territory. And this is the late the late nineteenth century, basically. Yeah, this is sort of uh, eighteen ninety, and we remember it from uh, the terrible massacre at uh, Wounded Knee that ended it. So James Mooney wrote the um, Smithsonian Institution's report on the ghost dance. It's still one of the great classics of American anthropology. In the course of this, he became kind of a trusted interlocutor and was introduced in Oklahoma by a group of Kiowa people to a a peyote ceremony in the wilderness up in the Washita Mountains, which he attended. And after that became kind of a, a very powerful advocate for peyote because he thought this was really the solution to the problem of preserving indigenous uh, Native American uh, culture and religion, because uh, unlike the ghost dance, which had been you know a real confrontation with white society that the Indians were bound to lose, the peyote ceremony was a way of keeping the old medicine alive inside this sort of structure of white supremacy. You know, the uh, people were in the reservations. But when they got together and had their peyote meetings, the spirit and the culture and the religious tradition could still be kept alive. So um, Mooney became passionate about trying to find out where this had come from and how it had developed. And all his leads pointed him back to the Comanche people who were at that time in a reservation in the Washington Mountains uh, with Kwana Parker as their leader. Kwana had been a a rebel, one of the last Comanche bands to be brought into forced captivity. And he became uh, a very powerful leader in this period, speaking for his people, keeping all their kind of land and property that they'd been allocated together and fighting their cultural battles. And he was also a very powerful advocate for peyote because he'd seen the ghost dance, he'd seen how it was going to end. He was um, at a point where he was just starting to um, get his people living reasonably comfortably and making a bit of money and surviving. So he was also very keen to develop the peyote religion as uh, a way of uh, preserving and sustaining and uh, nurturing 
Indian culture in this new age that they were living in. Mooney uh, eventually went down to the Comanche Reservation and had a peyote meeting with Quanah Parker in 1893. It's very well documented. Mooney took photos. And after the meeting, Mooney said to Quanah, I would like some peyote to take back to Washington, D.C. to do kind of uh, scientific tests on and so forth. And Quanah sold him a big burlap sack of dried peyote buttons, which Mooney took back to um, Washington. And they were the peyote buttons that were used by the Federal Department of Agriculture in their first chemical assays, that the uh, medical department of the university used them in the first human trials of psychedelics. They were given to uh, America's leading neurologist, who then passed some on to his friend, William James. And he had a terrible time of it. So William James found the drug that took him where he wanted to go. In fact, it turned out to be nitrous oxide, which he writes about in the varieties of religious experience. And, you know, so this is really the beginning of what we now call psychedelic science. And it came out of this transaction in the middle of Oklahoma between the white man who knew most about Indian culture at that point and the Indian who had really sort of negotiated white, white culture better than anyone else. So I think it's a great moment. It's kind of a handover, a transmission between worlds. It's the point where peyote moves from centuries of indigenous tradition to the gaze of uh, Western medicine and science. You know, there were a couple of points you made about this transitory period. One is that peyote, in some extent, plays a role in really among one of the first pan-Indian movements in North America, right? That a lot of it had been much more individual tribes in the past and where the federal mm -hmm. government had played one against the other and where there had always been a tradition of conflict between many of the troops, both conflict and alliance, but between many of the troops. And here you have a pan-Indian movement. So it's not just one group, the Comanches or others, it's multiple groups. And the second thing that I learned was that actually when the Native American church actually gets formalized and created by Kana and such, it's actually the first time that you see the transition to the phrase Native American from Indian, right? I think you make the point that, you know, there have been white Americans who would call themselves Native American 19th century because they wanted to distinguish themselves from other white immigrants who had arrived in the United States at a later point in the, in the late 19th century. But the ownership of the term Native American by Indians really happens with the creation of this church. And so that pan-Indian element of it, just say a little more about that. Yeah, that was something that had started with the ghost dance, with all the tribes getting together in this mass act of resistance against uh, white settlement. And it was one of the things as the ghost dance collapsed that people like uh, Kwana Parker and James Mooney were very keen to preserve and deepen was these connections between tribes. And that's still very much uh, part of the ethos when you have a peyote meeting these days, you should, or it's, it's good to have a bunch of people from different tribes involved. That's an important part of it. And the concept of Native American, uh, this is something that I, you know, I, I, I'd never read about or seen this before. It was something that it was actually the president of the Native American Church of Oklahoma, Charlie Haig, who's a Cheyenne, kind of walked me around to the place where the uh, you know the Native American Church Charter was put together and was telling me about the people who were involved. And he said, you know, I think that's the first time that Native American was ever used, and I've never found any earlier use. And I think it's unlikely that you would, because uh, Native Americans didn't become American citizens until 1925, and the church was founded in 1918. So at that point. 
you know, they weren't officially American citizens. And as you said, the idea of a Native American had been appropriated by, you know, pretty much the, the Trumpists of the 19th century. And so it's a very powerful phrase, the Native American church, and uh, it's making a lot of big claims. It's also kind of staking a big claim on the future of Native Americans as Americans. And um, it's also, you know, the assumption from a lot of the federal government, a lot of the missionaries, but this, this was some kind of drunken pagan ceremony that was had to be stamped out before the Indians would accept Christianity. What Kwana and James Mooney both said was, no, no, it's the other way around. This, um, this religion is actually an Indian expression of Christianity. It's not opposing Christianity. It, it's Christianity with a distinctive uh, Indian form and with its own sacrament. You know, you, to put this into a broader context, what's a bit remarkable about all this is that you're seeing the spread and growth and even to some extent legitimation of this peyote use um, and the emergence of Native American church in the context of the progressive era movement in the United States, which is, you know, advancing all of these positive reforms around child labor and working conditions and food and medicine, all this sort of stuff, but at the same time is pushing for the prohibition of psychoactive substances. I mean, it's the, it's the progressive movement which pushes for the banning of alcohol in the 18th Amendment. It's the progressive movement that's, you know, on the banning of opium imports and then the banning of heroin and coca and cocaine. So there's a broad sort of prohibitionist movement directed at virtually all psychoactive substances. And here's peyote and the Native American youth getting caught up in this stuff. But somehow they're able to maneuver and survive through this. Part of it, I guess, must have been the fact that, that, that you know, you had Kana and Mooney being very clever about presenting this not as a threat or challenge to Christianity, but as somehow advancing the goals of the missionaries and those who hoped for Indians to be better human beings than they imagined they could be. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a challenge generally for us now. We think about the progressive era, and of course, as you say, it's the era of uh, drug and alcohol prohibition. But I think one of the things, yes, it, the progressive era was also about uniting progressives and conservatives. If you look at things like alcohol prohibition, that was really what made it so powerful was that it was a coalition that includes, you know, doctors and the women's movement and all these traditionally progressive forces alongside, you know, the church and all the, the conservative ones. And in as much as the progressive era was about citizen activism and solidarity, of course, in the South, it encouraged states' rights. And uh, it was also the era of Jim Crow and lynchings and so on. So it's got this kind of uh, double side to it. But yeah, I think um, Mooney and Kwana both independently figured out how to sell peyote, if you were, to a sort of predominantly hostile white culture. And that was to make two claims for it. Firstly, it's a medicine. This is a very valuable medicine. It's useful for all kinds of things. It should really be part of the Western pharmacopoeia. Western uh, doctors and scientists should be taking a look at this, you know, hitting that message very hard. And then at the same time, you know, this is a genuine spiritual experience. It's very valuable for the tribes. The members of the Native American church are often the backbones of their community. And these are the, you know, these are the people holding the society together. And it's interesting to me to see the way they make those claims, because those are, in a way, very much the claims that the 
psychedelic community make today for psychedelics mm -hmm. you know that it's a very valuable medicine and it produces genuine spiritual experiences and i think that's that's not necessarily because those are like objectively the two main properties of psychedelics i think it's because those are the two sets of values the two propositions that fall on the most fertile ground when you're trying to sort of present the psychedelic experience to any culture that doesn't understand it We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second-grade teacher and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Uh, 
I have to say, I mean, you know, my beloved New York Times, if you look at its sordid history of covering the drug issue, you know, one mm-hmm. of their more infamous headlines was cocaine crazed Negroes, you know, killing people in the South. But another one you pointed out was a headline of theirs in 1923, peyote used as drug in Indians cult of death above an article arguing that its worship originated in the Aztec cult of human sacrifice. So even in 23, when you're beginning to have a scientific thing, you still have the quote unquote elite press you know, doing the worst form of sort of crappy journalism about this stuff. So obviously, most Americans are remaining deeply uninformed throughout this time. Yeah, and that's true in, you know, progressive opinion as well. You know, there are big kind of spiritual movements at that time, sort of new thought, a lot of people reacting within this progressive era context against uh, mass culture and mass industry and mass consumerism. There's a lot of people seeking out other forms of life and uh, and sort of seeking to expand consciousness in different ways. But even those people, when you look at them, they kind of, um, they're all opposed to alcohol, of course, because they see that as something that's uh, produced by big business, you know, brewers and distillers, preying on the vulnerable, advertising their product, uh, addicting people. And kind of that's the way that drugs are seen as well. Drugs are seen in, you know, by those progressive figures as something that is kind of deadening and dehumanizing and a terrible kind of uh, destructive effect on uh, consciousness in modern society. Meanwhile, uh, you know, there's also this fascinating story about the head of the Mormon church, you know, becoming open and friendly to peyote. I mean, what was that about? I love that. That's fantastic. I mean, he's the, he's the grandson of, uh, of the founder, Fred Smith, he was. And um, his was a, a breakaway group. But he was at that point, like a lot of people in the progressive era, saying, um, you know, we need real ecstatic spiritual experience that's what's being ground out of uh, of people in our kind of uh, the mass culture that we're living in today and he was um obviously out, out in utah the mormons did a lot of outreach to the native american tribes there and fred smith got very interested in their um religious practices and he attended peyote meetings and he studied the history of kind of ecstatic spiritual uh, experience doing a psychology doctorate and he's uh, reading his William James and he gets very interested in all William James stuff about second wind how it turns out that in all kinds of ways in all kinds of cultures people can reach what seem to be the limits of their physical endurance but then suddenly discover more energy and there's whole untapped sources of uh, mental and probably spiritual energy as well that if we could figure out how to get to we could be superhuman that's what he reads um, the yeah, his peyote experiences through, the idea that if we can uh, stay up all night, have this really intense um, experience all together, then we push ourselves onto a kind of higher mental plane and we have access to parts of our minds that we normally can't reach. And he wrote quite explicitly, he said, this is what we need. This is what we're not giving our worshippers. You know, it's all very well to kind of all wander into church and sing hymns together. But, uh, you know, we need to be offering people the possibility of real spiritual transcendence and uh, advocating peyote is the way to go. A proposition that didn't get very far, but he he wrote a a book about it and a kind of doctoral thesis. And it's fascinating to see the way that uh, he sees that something like Mormonism 
could incorporate a psychedelic ritual into the center of it. Yeah. I mean, it reminded me so much of the story of Bill W., right? One of the founders of mm. Alcoholics Anonymous, who I think it was LSD, starts having LSD trips, you know, and, and begins to advocate that LSD use could basically uh, help, you know, lead to the kind of spiritual deep insight that's necessary for people to put their alcohol addiction behind them. I mean, there was a rem- remarkable parallelism, I think, between your story of Frederick Madison Smith and and Bill W. But look, yeah. let's, let's switch over a little bit here, which is that, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, many of our listeners will be familiar with the organization MAPS, you know, founded by Rick Doblin in the 80s mm-hmm. uh, in terms of his advocacy around psychedelics research and MDMA. And some will be familiar with the Hefter Research Institute, which has been also around for almost 30 years and probably the leading organization of, of researchers and scientists trying to do psychedelics research. But Hefter plays an important role in your story. Yeah, he does. After James Mooney brings the peyote back to uh, Washington and people start taking it and writing up their experiences, often, you know, very beautifully in very wonderful detail in medical journals. Of course, chemists get very excited to try and figure out what it is, what's the active ingredient, what's the thing in the peyote cactus that is, is doing this, specifically producing the visions, which is the bit that Western scientists get so uh, fascinated by from the very beginning. And it turns out to be a difficult question to answer because peyote contains lots of resins and dozens of different alkaloids. And there's kind of a race which is won by Arthur Hefter, who's a not very well-known chemist in Leipzig, who wins this race by self-experimenting. He gets his peyote buttons, he extracts some resin, he takes the resin, he doesn't feel anything except but a bit of nausea, okay, it's not the resin. Then he starts working through the different alkaloids and then finds the one that produces the visions, which he calls mescaline. Mescal is one of the words, uh, one of the names for peyote at, at, at that point. Yeah, so from that point, um, there is still the cactus, but um, there is also this alkaline salt, the sort of pure drug, mescaline, which then um, 20 years later in Vienna is synthesized for the first time in a laboratory, not extracted from the cactus, but uh, synthesized from, uh, you know, some, starting from something you get out of eucalyptus oil, you know, through organic chemistry. You get this kind of um, chemical mescaline sulfate, which is. Uh, white crystalline powder. And as soon as you have that, pretty much the next year, um, Merck Pharmaceuticals, the German pharmaceutical company, start making it available as a research chemical. And from that point on, you really have two different histories because uh, before that, everybody knew that mescaline was this thing that came out of this cactus that had this backstory that was to do with American Indians and so forth. Once it becomes a white powder and a little vial on a shelf, people forget the backstory. So people forgot that mescaline came from peyote. It became a substance in its own right. Something the same happens with um, cocaine in the Mm -hmm. 19th century. The first coca wines and coca products are all branded with pictures of Incas and conquistadors and things reminding us that this comes from a plant in South America. Once cocaine is isolated, it just becomes like white tablets and it becomes like what they've called a pure white drug, you know, a product of modern science and changes its identity. And so from that point on, mescaline has its own distinctive Western identity that separates itself from its indigenous tradition. Well, you know, to jump forward a bit, I mean, there's this point in your story when you get to the late 50s, early 60s, and it's kind of like 
people had tried mescaline and now they're switching to LSD because they prefer that or maybe psilocybin or something else. But the uh, the meat of your story, to some extent, is this period really in the first half of the 20th century when mescaline's it. Right. There is no LSD and psilocybin has not been, um, you know, sort of extracted and synthesized, you know, from mushrooms and mescaline sort of sort of reigns alone. And there's this vivid history described that's part about psychiatry and medicine and part about intellectuals and artists and writers. And so first mm-hmm. on that on that sort of psychiatric side, we know that psychedelics can be risky for some people with mental illness. We also know it may be incredibly beneficial with people you know having certain types of mental illness. Now when it comes to schizophrenia, there's a special role I think that mescaline plays in all this. Yeah, that's right. And that's what got it to the uh, point where Aldous Huxley decided he was interested in in trying it. Through the 1920s and 1930s, mescaline is very, very widely used in psychology. The thing that people are most interested in studying is hallucinations, as they call them, sort of visual imagery, which is a kind of fascinating subject for psychologists because where do hallucinations come from and what do they mean, all these questions. But also, they're very hard to study because when people are hallucinating, they normally either kind of have a high fever or in the middle of a toxic crisis or a psychotic episode. They're normally not very good at telling you what's going on. They're normally in a kind of extremely intense and disturbed state. But what scientists found so fascinating about mescaline once they had it in this pure form is that you could uh, inject someone with it, which is the way they usually went. And uh, then an hour or so later, they would suddenly start seeing these visions. You tell them to close their eyes and say, tell me what you're seeing on your eyelids. And people would produce these hours-long monologues of these incredible visions that they're having, having, you know, very articulately and coherently. So there's a long history of that and of giving mescaline to um, artists and uh, philosophers and writers to see what they made of the experience. So people like Jean-Paul Sartre and Walter Benjamin get given mescaline, modernist artists paint on it. And then when you get to the 1950s is where it really finds um, its kind of vital application in psychiatry, because uh, that's the decade in which psychiatry starts getting more biological in its orientation. People discover uh, things like um, chlorpromazine, the early antipsychotics, which look as if they can switch off a psychosis. So then you've got these um, things like mescaline and LSD, which are conceived as psychotomimetics. The idea is that the uh, effects they're producing are kind of like a model psychosis, a chemical version of psychosis, where you hallucinate and have disjointed thinking and time and space get, start getting distorted and all these things that people recognize as symptoms of schizophrenia, which is, of course, you know, the great, the sort of central mental disorder that everybody's trying to deal with. So you get this idea, well, if we can switch psychosis on with a psychedelic, um, or a hallucinogen or a psychotomimetic, as they were called at that time, and you can switch it off with an antipsychotic, then we can play around experimentally. But also, that suggests that schizophrenia might have a chemical cause. So if mescaline or LSD produce something like schizophrenia, then maybe there is a chemical in the brain that's something like mescaline or LSD that's producing these um, psychoses, and that uh, if you could figure out what that was, then you could retrofit a chemical cure to it. Mm -hmm. But in the end, that doesn't go very far, right? 
that's right. There's a great, I mean, I think one episode that people uh, people usually remember is Ken Kesey signing up as a young man to uh, a psychedelic trial um, at, at Palo Alto uh, Veterans Hospital, and he's given LSD and mescaline, and uh, that's how he gets turned on to them, and then he writes One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest about it. Now, that trial that he was uh, participating in, run by a researcher called Leo Hollister was um, was kind of um, was was looking at this question of well are the effects of psychedelics really very like um, you know the effects of schizophrenia and psychosis so uh, Hollinger wanted a control trial of healthy individuals to take uh, psychedelics and uh, see what happened to them and he went well this word psych this word uh, um, hallucination sounds very kind of um, you know clinical and precise and you get it in a lot of doctors notes but actually what are we talking about if you talk about the hallucinations experienced by people having in psychotic episodes it's often that things kind of taste strange or they think they're being poisoned or they hear voices you know these are very different from the uh, hallucinations that uh, normal people have on psychedelics yeah so those two started to get decoupled and then around about the same time as well a lot of people started coming into emergency wards with really kind of having some full-blown psychotic episodes and it turned out they'd been taking loads of amphetamines and uh, they carried on taking them and that was what happened so uh, the term amphetamine psychosis was uh, coined and then people looked at that and went okay well that's working on the dopamine system so maybe um schizophrenia and these um, psychotic disorders are dopamine disorders so at that point the science shifted away from uh, mescaline and lsd and the psychedelics in a different direction Right. But before the shift, uh, there was enough interesting stuff out there to uh, interest the uh, CIA and its predecessor agency, the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services and military branches. Uh, what was their interest in all of this? Well, they <clears throat> pretty much every psychoactive drug they had a crack at uh, looking for truth serums. And they ended up, as we know, sort of mostly with things like um, sodium pentothal and these kind of um, narcotic, hypnotic, sedative drugs. But on the way, they tried cannabis, they tried LSD, they tried mescaline. So that usually didn't persist for them for very long until the CIA in the uh, 1950s decided to work with LSD. So you just had this incredible crazy period completely unsupervised completely unethical where uh, you know through the 1950s and the 1960s you had cia researchers giving lsd usually rather than mescaline to hundreds and hundreds of people to people in mental hospitals to convicts to people without their knowledge a lot of this of course all sort of came out uh, in the early 1970s the, the mk ultra program as it was called Mm -hmm. Well, there was another thing too, right? I mean, there was, I think you said there, a lot of it was about trying to find a truth serum. Then the other element, mm -hmm. I think, was about spraying it into the air in order to j produce mass anxiety or something like that. I don't think everything ever came of that, right? No, that's right. Or, you know, that's sort of the kind of persistent urban legend about how you could put it into the water supply. The idea was that it could be used in military combat in that way that you could um, disorientate a, a civilian population and so on. But yeah, and then there were all kinds of crazy ideas that we could put some 
LSD and Castro's cigar and kind of, uh, you know, right. make him crazy just before he did some, uh, you know, big public lecture. There were all kinds of ideas, which, as you say, didn't get anywhere. And actually kind of their real life and their real contribution is to fiction. These are all stories that we kind of know from uh, sort of paranoid science fiction spy thrillers. And I think that's where a lot of them came from in the first place. Those uh, CIA agents were uh, great readers of, uh, you know, things like the early James Bond novels and uh uh you know all the way further back and the manchurian candidate and so on um uh, and i think uh there's some there were some great interviews with them later where they said oh the trouble with the manchurian candidate was it persuaded everybody that this thing that we've been trying to do for ages they've been unable to do was possible there was one interesting line that you had in the book where you said that that, that was some of the native americans would say is that you know with with, with alcohol the hangover comes later with peyote, the hangover comes first. Yeah, that's right. That's a that's a Native American expression. Uh, mescaline is slightly different chemically from the other psychedelics. Uh, LSD and psilocybin and DMT are tryptamines, a kind of class of chemical that's active at very small doses and heads straight for the brain. Mescaline is a phenethylamine. I guess the chemical that it's most closely related to is. Uh, uh, MDMA or 2CB. So you have to take a much larger dose and it has a lot more physical effects. And there's a lot in the um, Native American church peyote ceremony, which is about like, mediating these effects, getting everybody sort of, uh, you know, <clears throat> working the physical effects through with the drums and the singing and the kind of whole stages of the, of, of, of the ceremony and so on. Mm-hmm. You also say at one point, and this probably relates to the, the sort of bigger cultural conflict over psychedelics in the 60s, and you're talking about two other quite famous intellectuals of the mid-20th century. You say, whereas Walter Benjamin saw the potential in psychedelics for political resistance in expanded consciousness, Ernst Jünger saw a weapon of the individual against society. I mean, he was the fellow who coined the, the phrase psychonaut. I mean, yes, once yeah. again, so people sort of using this drug in, and, and going in all sorts of different directions, and then many of them getting frustrated and sort of turning away from it. But Aldous Huxley really is kind of the right person, right time, right place. How and why is that? It's partly because he had figured all this stuff out already before he took mescaline. In this sense, I mean, the other great origin story of psychedelics is Albert Hoffman's. But if you read Hoffman's notes that he wrote in 1943 after his LSD experience, it's kind of a horrible overdose. He regards it as a terrible, you know, terrible experience. And then gradually you can see, as the way he talks about it, it works its way through until by the 19. 19- 70s, you have his famous account of it in uh, LSD, My Problem Child, which is all about, you know, the beautiful visuals and the psychedelics and the kaleidoscopes and the whirlpools and the rainbows and so on. It took Hoffman a long time to really get with the psychedelic aspects of LSD. Um, And I think Huxley actually was there already 10 years before he took mescaline. He'd 
written this uh, anthology of the perennial philosophy where he'd gathered together all his favorite sacred and mystical texts from different traditions and said, look, they're all basically talking about the same thing. He'd read his William James, of course, and William James had come up with this kind of classification for spiritual experiences saying um, they're noetic, they seem really true, they seem really undeniable, they just ca- you can't prime them, they just come and they just happen, they're not repeatable. You know, So Huxley's had a good idea of what the experience was going to be, I think, before he took it. I mean, the thing that he's most famous for, you know, the insight in Doors of Perception that everyone remembers is this idea that the brain is like a reducing valve. You know, we have all these different experiences and stimuli coming at us all the time, and our brain reduces them down to the little trickle that we can deal with in uh, everyday life and normal reality. And what mescaline does is to take away this reducing valve and suddenly we get flooded with all the stuff that's going on there that we normally screen out. So Huxley explains this all to Humphrey Osmond, the psychiatrist who gives him the mescaline, in his first letter to Osmond, so like way before he's taken it. So I think Huxley had these ideas already worked out. And actually, he was a little bit depressed. It was a bit hard to get through to people. People, particularly in the literary world, were kind of jaded and cynical. And, oh, it's uh, Huxley and his cranky, you know, spiritual theories again. But then suddenly, once they were insights from mescaline, which brought with it this idea of kind of cutting edge science, you know, very sort of uh, futuristic, opening up new ideas about the mind, then a lot of the ideas that Huxley already had were filtered through the mescaline experience. And he really went with it as an identity. I mean, a lot of those early researchers like Jean-Paul Sartre or Walter Benjamin would just took it once. It was an interesting day. They wrote it up and they got on with their lives. You know, for Huxley, it became his identity. And I think it really turned his late career around and made him into, um, you know, a peculiarly uh, modern sort of prophet. And of course, that was a contrast because when he wrote Brave New World, you know, there was a prominent drug in there, Soma, which was more the kind mm-hmm. of soporific that was a bad drug. It was the one in which you kept the masses happy at some mm-hmm. superficial level so they didn't challenge the, uh, the established order. So he obviously had gone through an evolution in his view of psychoactives, psychoactive substances. Yeah. I mean, Soma is very much the progressive era view of drugs. You know, it's the drug that's mass produced by, you know, Ford Industries or whatever and everybody has to take it and it keeps all those difficult individual feelings in place and bonds everybody in a rather kind of uh, you know bovine way with the sort of mass consciousness and keeps society in its place and i think that was how progressives of that era saw drugs in general and i think soma is the great expression of that and you know even like a year or two before he writes doors of perception that's still Huxley's line, you know, that transcendence through drugs is a false transcendence and your brain's just being chemically manipulated and you might get a brief little illumination, but the come down is going to be not worth it. He's like that kind of right up until the moment when he takes mescaline. And then I think he has this thing of, huh, well, this isn't drugs. This is something else. You know, there's a uh, little paragraph you have in the book which reminded me why Huxley also is that link between, on the one hand, the Bill W., you know, or Mormon leader Fred Smith insight from the religious Mm -hmm. side and the contemporary researchers. And you write, Mescaline did not drive Huxley mad, as Osmond had feared, but it triggered the quote-unquote truth-taking stare. 
His account has the urgent supercharged quality of what psychotherapists might describe as a quote-unquote spiritual emergency or breakdown breakthrough. It brought a long period of accumulated mental and psychic stress to an explosive moment of truth from which he emerged with a new narrative and direction. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's such a, there's such a joyousness in uh, Huxley's uh, discovery and acceptance of mescaline in uh, The Doors of Perception. I think that's its kind of wonderful quality. He's this intellectual who's read everything and knows everything, and then suddenly, late in life, he takes 400 milligrams of this powder dissolved in water, and he suddenly has this breakthrough experience. Yeah, I think at that point in his career, there was a lot of accumulated um, frustration, a lot of ill health, he was, uh, you know, attempting all kinds of uh, remedies for different health problems. His eyesight was getting worse, and it really turned him around. It made him back into a household name in a way that he hadn't been since the twenties. And I think it kind of, um, you know, he just radiates this wonderful serenity for those last few years of his life. <laughs> I think his most famous line in, in the book is when he's looking at his pants and he says, yeah. "Those folds in the trousers, what a labyrinth of endlessly significant complexity, and the texture of the gray flannel, how rich, how deeply, mysteriously sumptuous." And I think many of those psychedelics know that experience of just focusing on something and seeing the endless number of things you've never seen before. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Although, did you say that actually he wasn't actually wearing um, gray flannel pants that his wife persuaded him to change the story? He was just like wearing jeans. And she said, it'll read better, read better if you actually substitute flannel pants into this. Yeah, she, that's, that's, that's true. Uh, he was, by all accounts, wearing jeans. And then when he wrote it and his wife read it, she said, oh, all this, I think you ought to dress up for your readers. And I think that was just right, because if he'd been wearing jeans, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as good. It was because he was this kind of uh, tweedy, intellectual British figure that this kind of effusion of joy was so wonderful. Uh-huh. So listen, so now by the time you get to the 60s, just explain why there's this sort of mass defection from mescaline to LSD. A lot of it, I think, is about dose. A gram of mescaline is two or three doses. A gram of LSD is thousands of doses. So, you know, even by the time that Huxley was writing Doors of Perception, clinical researchers were switching to LSD, partly because it was cheaper, but also because if it was active at such small doses that it must be hitting some particular trigger or lock and key mechanism in the brain. Because the theory of mescaline and cannabis up until that point would be, oh, this kind of floods the brain with sort of weird chemicals. Uh, But LSD obviously wasn't doing that. It was doing something more specific. So I think that made it more appealing. And then by the early 1960s, when uh, psychedelics were starting to take off in the wider world. Mescaline, of course, was one of the very first to be closed down, you know, after 1962, 1963. You know, you could get hold of it if you had the right headed notepaper or a PhD, but even that got tighter as things went along. And then by 1965, when, you know, sort of Owsley and the underground chemists sort of first starting to synthesize psychedelics, you know, what are you going to do? Synthesize a gram of mescaline and give it to two of your friends or synthesize a gram of LSD and give it to like everybody in the Bay Area. That's the, <laughs> you know, and the, the you know, the, uh, the criminal penalty is the same. So LSD entirely took over 
the illicit market for the 60s drug culture from the very beginning. But mescaline, of course, had a particular cachet because everybody had read Doors of Perception and, you know, everybody wants to to try mescaline. It had this sort of uh, magic about it and some kind of connoisseur chemists would make small batch runs. So it was kind of always remembered. But I think by the time you got to 1970, probably everybody had heard of it, but very few people had taken it. And the cultural product, I think, of from that moment is... uh, Hunter Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, where, you know, from page one, he's taking kind of uh, every drug in the pharmacopoeia and more. And then, so where do you go? Like a third of the way in, you've got to sort of head for some huge sort of uh, chaotic, apocalyptic drug experience. And he says, at that point, we cracked out the mescaline. And I think that's because there were not that many people who really knew what it did, but everybody knew what it signified. And after that, I think people remembered it from fear and loathing as this kind of, it's the sort of nay plus ultra. It's, it's the most intense psychedelic experience you can imagine. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. (laughs) Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. (laughs) Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days. 
but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. You know, there's something almost about mescaline in your story that reminds me of almost like, like almost mescaline is almost sort of the forest gump of psychedelics, right? Somehow <laughs> popping up and showing up. I mean, you, you have this wonderful moment where you, you talk about the world that mescaline plays in one of the great works of modern American poetry, which was the poem Howl by Allen Ginsberg. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, Ginsberg and William Burroughs were very mm-hmm. early adopters of uh, peyote and mescaline. They were kind of taking a lot around that peyote, particularly around the time that um, Ginsburg wrote Howl. And uh, yeah, that's the story he tells about that, you know, devastating sequence in Howl where sort of Moloch, you know, this uh, enormous great kind of uh, sort of beast that represents um, industrial mass society becomes this looming presence. And there's a point where Ginsburg says he'd taken some peyote and was looking out of his uh, window in San Francisco in the fog and saw this big building with all its lights on through the fog. And that's where he got the idea of Moloch, this kind of biblical monster that consumes its young. Mm-hmm. Now to jump forward, another point you make here is that when you reflect back, you say the most consequential mescaline trip of the 60s was the one taken in April 1960 by Alexander Shulgin. Elaborate. Yeah, that's right. Well, that was uh, Alexander Shulgin's first psychedelic experience. And he puts it wonderfully, his, his equivalent of Huxley looking at his trousers is uh, saying, um, it was uh, amazing when the mescaline came up that he suddenly, he was in a world that he remembered, but it was the world that he'd lived in when he was a child, five or six years old, when everything was kind of new and fresh and everything was possible. And it transported him straight back to that childlike moment. You know, William Wordsworth's poetry is another great sort of uh, touchstone for a lot of the early mescaline experimenters, I think, uh, for the same reason. And then after the trip, Shulgin, who was an organic chemist, became fascinated that there had been so little work around analogues of mescaline. He started tinkering around and synthesizing versions of it. And uh, of course, from those experiments, he kind of synthesized MDMA, which was the one that you know became a breakthrough first in psychotherapy and then as a street drug as ecstasy. So that whole sort of second wave of psychedelic culture, I think, you know, pretty much came out of uh, Shulgin's mescaline trip in that sense, and not just MDMA, of course, but dozens and dozens of different uh, phenethylamines and then tryptamines, uh, different novel psychedelics. I mean, notably 2CB as well, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, and in a way, it made me think, right, when we think about the use of MDMA and we think about it, especially in two different types of contexts, right? One or, or, or really three. I mean, one is in the its value in things like couples counseling and psychotherapy. And now we're, we'll likely be approved for, you know, PTSD. And then we think about um, or maybe that one shifts into the second, which is the more medical use. But the third has been its use in the rave scene and in people dancing together and enjoying it 
in that context. And it made me think in a way also analogously to mescaline, where you talked mm. about the way in which it's used communally among you know, Native American church, among indigenous peoples, but also much more individualistically, very early as a group thing among, you know, Western world. But that's kind of similarity uh, in their sort of journeys in a way, or their different experiences. Yeah, no, I think that's... Uh... I think that that's very valid. If you go back to the first um, Spanish reports of peyote in Mexico, they report on it being used in two different ways. One for kind of healing or divination, which is uh, you know effectively a, a patient and a doctor sitting down in a sort of healing compact in which you know the peyote is sort of the third personality that mediates and you get a kind of conversation between um, the two people and and the cactus from which you know the solution to the problem whether it's a sort of a medical healing or whether it's divination or um, sorcery you know that emerges from that and then there's a second use which you read about in some of the early Jesuit reports where they find, particularly up in the north of Mexico, where peyote comes from, whole villages where people take it together, usually around a fire, usually at night, usually with that kind of three-step shuffle dance, and people will just keep going on the cactus and on the dancing and on the alcohol if it's there as well, and get into this kind of group trance, group mind for which it's so wonderfully effective. So I think, yeah, those two modern uses that you identify, you can follow them all the way back to the very beginning of the story in a way. Some of it I think you present as the difference nature of the use of peyote or San Pedro between those Native American groups that had been more of the kind of warrior, the hunter-gatherer, the Comanches, what have you, as opposed to the other more settled Indians who had been agricultural for hundreds of years. And that in part because of their you know, very different cultures, their nature of the use of this plant varied substantially. There's also a big distinction in that sense, between the indigenous use of peyote in Mexico by tribes like the Huichol, there's usually a shaman or someone who's very specialized in mediating these ceremonies, mediating these states and these spaces. It's very different from the use of peyote in the Native American church, which is much more democratic. And in a way, I think perhaps reflecting the uh, white Christian culture in which it evolved, it's more kind of Protestant. Everybody is their own conscience and their own priest. Everybody is having their own conversation with the peyote. And the roadman, who's the person who officiates at the ceremony, is not a shaman or a priest or anyone with special spiritual power. In fact, they're very, very scrupulous about making clear that's not what they are. All the ceremonial instruments get passed around the circle so everybody gets to share. And that's, uh, I think, a very different type of use. And it's kind of, you know, it's sitting and singing and praying. It's in a way very, very sober as a ceremony. It's not a kind of uh, ecstatic or Dionysiac thing in every way. But that also, as you say, was much more congenial to some tribes than others. The Comanches, where it may have started, they were nomadic people. And, you know, any warrior pretty much could uh, stand up and say, okay, I want to go down here and do a 
raid over the border in Mexico uh, here and there. And other people would kind of say, OK, I'm with you and come with them. You get all these impromptu bands forming all the time. So within that context, it was very easy if some people chose to um, have uh, peyote meetings and other people didn't. That was all pretty, pretty loose and pretty simple. Whereas with the Pueblo people, you know, who'd been living in much more tightly ordered societies for hundreds of years where... Um, Spiritual ceremonies tended to happen in a in a kiva in a special sacred place, and everybody had their role in the ceremony. It was much more disruptive in that kind of uh, culture to suddenly introduce a whole new um, religious movement. Mike, when you were doing this research, right about the historical uh, uses of peyote and indigenous peoples, how do you deal with that issue of the sources, especially when there were not there was essentially nothing or almost nothing in the way of, of indigenous written sources about peyote? Yeah, that's one of the um, fascinating things about writing a Western history and a non-Western history in parallel. They're very, very different types of history with very different types of sources. So from the very beginning, the Western history is about individual experience. There's an enormously rich history of, I took some peyote and I took it at uh, 8.23 p.m. And at 9.15, I started to notice these violent rings around the, you know, it's a story about individuals and individuals trying to describe this experience in isolation. And when you turn to indigenous sources, there is really very little like that, uh, you can look out for sort of first-person narratives of psychedelic experience from indigenous cultures, and there are really not a lot, and most of them are kind of in conversation with Western anthropologists, because I think that's um, it's a fundamentally different experience that produces a very different type of history. It's not so much about the individual experience, it's much more about the it's it's much more of a communal experience and it can't really be lifted out of its culture so what you're telling in uh, sort of indigenous and non-western histories is uh, much more broadly a story of a people and what's happening to them you know and those are wonderful narratives you know if you can find your way into them and find enough sources uh, you know they're really epic and really powerful and you, you come across it in various sources sort of Weechol and Native American church that there's a bit of a presumption against talking about the actual experience itself if you say to people so what happened when you took the peyote in the meeting, what were your experiences? People won't really answer that. And I think that's partly because you're, you're not really thinking about your own experience at that point. You're part of something bigger. And also what you're getting when the peyote speaks to you is something that's private. It's something that goes straight to your heart. And there's a lot more like, indigenous cultures suspicion about people's motives. Why would you share this incredibly private personal experience would you be doing it you know to boost your status would you be doing it to have some kind of influence or control over the person you're telling the story to you have to come at the question in quite a different way and yeah there are i'm sure enormous numbers of stories of indigenous peoples all up and down the americas and their engagement with mescaline containing cacti that we don't know and that we can't get to but uh, the ones that we can, they end up kind of being a very different type of story from the Western story. And it was fascinating to uh, see the way that those two kind of um, sources and historical methods diverged. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it was also fortunate that you had first James Mooney 
and then after him, the academic Weston Labar, both yeah. deeply committed to trying to present the Indians, the Native Americans' use of these things and their very different experience to Western audiences, whether in testimony before legislative committees or in their books and their other writings. And and the fact that there were some who were deeply committed to that probably helped, not just you and as a historian, but in terms of conveying this alternative perspective, even at the time. Definitely. I mean, it's a great tragedy that James Mooney never got to write his peyote book. If we had a big peyote book to sit alongside his big ghost dance book, that would be great. But in fact, Weston Labar, as you say, you know, a Yale anthropologist who um, spent time in Oklahoma in the 1930s, wrote a big book called The Peyote Cult, which was kind of effectively, in a way, the book that Mooney had never written. And that became a Bible for all sorts of people. It went through edition after edition after edition. And that time from the 1930s onwards, there were lots of Native American groups who were setting up Native American church branches and chapters around the place for the first time. And a couple of Native American sources have said to me that a, a lot of that was in, you know, people would pick up Western Labar's peyote cult as a Bible, you know, and it's got the uh, diagrams of how the um, fire circle is arranged in the different traditions. It's kind of a real how-to guide and manual as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and then of course there's that, that the next step of that where I think you describe Weston Labar taking along a young researcher named Richard Evan Schultes on one of his mm-hmm. first experiences, and he then becomes the famed ethnobotanist at Harvard who mentors a whole new generation of people looking at psychoactive and non-psychoactive medicines and uh, plants, etc., in Latin America and elsewhere. That's right, and that's that, that is Richard Schultes's first gig, and he gets interested by reading. Um, a book by a German psychologist from the 1920s, Heinrich Kluver, who did some of that early mescaline research and tried to classify hallucinations in terms of what he called form constants, spirals and lattices and cobwebs, the underlying geometrical forms and what they tell us about the relationship between the eye and the brain and how mescaline might disrupt that. That was a kind of really early classic of uh, mescaline science, cognitive psychology, I guess. And that was the book that Schultes picked up in uh, Harvard Botanical Library and read and thought, wow, this is fascinating. And then discovered that, yeah, there was this other young researcher, Weston Labar, who was going out to Oklahoma and researching peyote. And he went along and they did what they called a joint Harvard-Yale expedition, which was kind of the two of them in an old Studebaker bumping up and down dirt roads on the way out to the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma. But I think that Schultz's work, that was the very first work that he did in this area, was fantastic because he he said, okay, the peyote ceremony is relatively new and peyote is not indigenous to here, but let's look at all the other plants involved in the ceremony. Let's look at the sage and the cedar and all the incenses. And he did this beautiful... um, sort of taxonomy of all the different plants that were used in the ceremonies so that you could see that even if the peyote was a recent innovation, everything else was really, really deeply embedded in the culture. Yeah. You know, it's funny the way you describe Weston Labar's book, that in his making such an effort to depict accurately the perspectives and practices of Native Americans in using peyote, it lands up becoming the sort of guide and reference book for Native Americans themselves and succeeding generations. It reminds me almost, Mike, of what people hear about the Godfather, right? How it's kind yeah. of based upon mafia culture. And then it turns out that the mafia in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, for them, the Godfather becomes their reference point to how to be a mafiosi, you know? So 
there is this kind of interplay back and forth between the uh, the writer and who portrays it to the broader world and actually the original people who they wrote about. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, Mike, I'm just thinking that when we think about the sort of, you know, the drug war, the modern American drug war, and, and not just mm -hmm. beginning with Nixon in the 70s, but even before that. And you see mescaline getting swept up, you know, getting banned by the federal government in the 60s. It becomes, you know, subject to, you know, the 1970 Controlled Substances Act. Mm -hmm. I think it's put in Schedule 1. Yeah, it then goes into the United Nations Convention of 71. It gets banned there. But amidst all of the sort of criminalization, essentially, of the crystal form of mescaline, at the same time, it almost feels like peyote is sort of carrying the flag as the one semi-quasi-limited but still legal use of a psychedelic. And that even when the threats come down, even when there's movements by the federal government back in the 30s to ban it, you know, the Native American church is able to fight, ba fight back. And then at, even at that key moment in the early 1990s when the U.S. Supreme Court and Justice Scalia say, no religious exception, the hell with the First Amendment freedom of religion here, it doesn't go that far, you see Congress. Congress coming right back, you know, and saying, nope, there's going to be a federally federal protection here for the religious use of peyote by the Native American church. And so there's something about that fusion of this psychedelic with the sort of Native American use. And that even as Native Americans are being perpetually discriminated against, treated as second class citizens, being forced into elements of assimilation, what have you, there's that element of deference for this piece of it that enables it to survive and almost carry the torch until this new renaissance. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, the persecution of peyote was brutal, you know, from the 1880s all the way through to the 1930s. And then you had the Indian New Deal and in theory, more of an acceptance of the principle of uh, preserving traditional indigenous culture and worship. But then after that, the harassment continued and continued. And as you say, it all went all the way to the Supreme Court in the 1990s. You know, it's been a generational and attritional struggle. And I really understand why for Native Americans, it is a little hard to take the fact that we've got this new young generation of white Americans um, saying, yeah, psychedelics are great and uh, yay, peyote. And, you know, that's, I think, pretty hard for those, particularly the older generation of people who've uh, lived through that history to come to terms with. But I think it is fascinating that at this point, mescaline, the crystal, as you say, has pretty much disappeared. You can still get it... Um, you know, on some chemical websites, but obviously very highly controlled, and it's only really used for kind of small amounts of sort of, uh, you know, drug testing purposes and so on. As a recreational or non-medical or illicit drug, I mean, you could barely find it on the on the dark web. You, you kind of can, but it's almost disappeared. And Really, you know, the flag, as you say, for mescaline is now being carried by the cacti, and there must be more people um, around the world taking peyote in San Pedro than ever before. That there are serious conservation issues around San Pedro. There is not enough of it. It only grows in its kind of quite small area of northern oh, Mexico. Peyote. And conservation issues uh, around peyote. Sorry, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. around peyote. Uh, and it grows a little bit kind of uh, in Texas around Laredo, but there's barely enough, if there is enough, to supply the Native American church, let alone all the other people who are suddenly interested in it. So I think what emerges from this is um, actually that San Pedro looks like the future. 
because um, there are unlimited amounts of it. Unlike peyote, it grows very, very quickly, and you can grow it pretty much anywhere, and lots of people do. Mescaline is federally prohibited, but um, you know, growing and trading San Pedro cacti seems to be pretty loosely controlled. I mean, I'm aware of some people being arrested for doing it, but there are also lots of uh, parts of the world where uh, that's not enforced. So, uh, curiously, it's the uh, yeah, it's the San Pedro cactus that has emerged as the form in which mescaline looks most likely to survive and be used sort of broadly in the future. Uh, that's wonderful. So, what's the next book about? Well, the next book is kind of a a big sort of survey of the history of drugs. Its working title is Drugs and the Making of the Modern Mind. So it's kind of the history of addiction and the history of um, you know, criminalization and drug control. And there was very little about the drug experience and drug experiments and um, you know, the user's perspective. So that's the kind of material that I've been gathering over the years. And you end up with this picture where you can see, like, particularly by the end of the 19th century, Drug experiments in science and medicine are very common and beyond as well. And this is the period, of course, of the uh, birth of psychology and the discovery of the unconscious and the arrival of modernism. And all these um, aspects of modernity are really thoroughly infused with drug experiments and drug experiences. And then in the 20th century, they kind of get written out of our intellectual history, because once drugs are problematized, we kind of uh, forget this. So what I'm really trying to do in this new book is to say that what we have now in the 20th century, this fascination with um, drug experiences and sort of uh, expanded um, altered states of consciousness, which we tend to assume is something that we've just discovered in the West, right? Something that we have no tradition of. In fact, there is a long tradition of this in uh, Western culture and Western science. And so that's what I'm really trying to uh, encompass and sort of uh, reclaim and, uh, you know, restore that story to where it should be in our intellectual history. Oh, Mike, I can't wait for it. So listen, I mean, I think I love this conversation. Uh, let me just tell Tador listeners first, I mean, just take a look, you know, Google him, look on Amazon, whatever. You'll see these amazing sets of books he's he's written about all sorts of uh, drug and other issues. But beyond that, I haven't really asked this before, but I'm really curious if you really like this episode and if you'd like to hear more conversations with historians, just, you know, tweet me or send an email to psychoactive at protozoa dot com and let me know and in which case i will be happy to oblige so mike thanks ever so much best of luck with this next book and i look forward to our paths uh, crossing again sometime soon oh thanks so much ethan that's a great pleasure if you're enjoying psychoactive please tell your friends about it or you can write us a review at apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts we love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. 
It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivik Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, in advance of the upcoming presidential election in the Philippines to replace President Duterte, I'll be speaking with Gideon Lasco, a medical anthropologist and one of Philippines' leading academics studying the drug war. When I started interviewing young men, they ended up sharing me their stories about shabu, about methamphetamine. I got to know their community, I got to know their lives, I got to hang out with them. But when a few years later, Duterte embarked on this deadly drug war, my thought came back to all the young men I met and wondering if they were targeted at all by, by this. And, and I knew that the people like them were being killed. And I felt that I had a moral responsibility to go back to this topic to be an advocate of drug reform. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.